Okay, ladies, we're going to get started. Can everybody hear me? All right, I'll try to stay close to the mic so you can all hear. Here we are at our last day of our study in James. We have been confronted, we've been challenged, and I pray that our hearts will also be transformed. I think James has offered us very practical and pastoral wisdom throughout. He's been very direct, though, giving 54 commands in 108 verses. And so if you leave here thinking, boy, he's told us a lot, he really has. And in so many ways, James echoes the teachings of Jesus. And I think we've seen that repeatedly. Now, last week, we were encouraged to be patient in suffering and pure in speech because we know that the Lord's return is any day. It's at hand. And then James gave wonderful examples for us of perseverance in the prophets and in Job, who points the way to God's goodness, his compassion, and his mercy of the Lord. And then now in this final section of the book, James gives instructions on how to be steadfast in prayer, trusting in God's all-sufficient grace, and pursuing the lost. And so would you pray with me before we start? Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see and to understand this passage. We need you. This troubled world, it's not our home. Help us to live with patience and the hope of your coming, which is near at hand. But until then, my heart will go on singing. Will you help me, Lord? Help me to carry on with joy until the day my eyes behold the city, until the day God calls me home. So, Lord, would you tune our hearts to sing your praise this morning. Bind our hearts to yours. Keep us from wandering. I mean, would you keep us from being double-minded? Cause us to be steadfast in prayer, trusting your all-sufficient grace as we wait for your coming. And help us in our pursuit of lost prodigals that are in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my outline there, you have it on your handout. Number one is, be steadfast in prayer in all circumstances. This is a common command at the end of Paul's letters, is to be consistent in prayer. So even though James doesn't end his last two verses that way, it's very common in the epistles. And when to pray? It's really any time. It's under any circumstances. In uh, the way Paul ended 1 Thessalonians was, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And then Colossians 4 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So when you pray in all circumstances without ceasing, you will persevere through all things. So pray and sing. We open our Wednesday morning Bible study with a hymn or a song because it so often expresses the idea of the scripture text in a way that you will remember, I hope, and you might even hum throughout the week. I think there are some hymns that provide comfort in times of pain when words alone feel empty. Hymns have carried saints through the worst of suffering, reminding us of the deep, abiding, and sovereign love of the Lord. I have felt God's peace in the midst of dark valleys, times of chaos, times of grief, and I remind myself of truths, that Jesus died for me. He knows my pain. He is with me, and he stays with me no matter what. He has promised that nothing can separate me from his love. 
and he will perfectly and forever guard me. Nothing can take me away from Jesus and his love. He will hold me fast. And because of his steadfast love and mercy and grace, I can be steadfast in him. These are the most comforting truths that will sustain me through discouragement, disappointment, loss. When we are in Christ, we can sing whatever the circumstances, because he is worthy of praise in spite of our suffering. You might know, you might have heard of Horatio Spafford. He wrote a famous hymn after some traumatic events in his life. The first was the death of his four-year-old son from scarlet fever in 1870. And then the great Chicago fire of 1871 ruined him financially. He had been a successful lawyer. He had invested in properties all over Chicago. And then a third hit was an, an additional economic turndown that happened in 1873, and his businesses failed even more. And so he planned to travel to England to help D.L. Moody with an evangelistic campaign. And due to a last-minute change of plans, he sent his family on ahead of him, and he was going to follow them later. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship sank after a collision with another sea vessel, and all four of his daughters died. And his wife Anna survived and sent this now famous telegram, Saved alone, what shall I do? So Horatio immediately set sail for England, and at, what point, at one point during his voyage, the captain of the ship, aware of the tragedy that had struck his family, summoned Horatio to tell him that they were passing over that very spot where the shipwreck had occurred. As Horatio thought about his daughters, words of comfort and hope filled his heart and his mind, and he wrote them down, and they've since become a well-loved hymn that we sang last week. When peace, like a river, attends, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That is an anchor for our minds and our hearts in times of tragedy, loss, suffering, sickness. The first situation that James says, he says, when you're suffering, you must pray. So we're right back where we started in James 1 with suffering and trials. Ask God, pray for wisdom. James ends this letter now in much the same way as he began. Trials and how we meet those with patience and joy, how it produces steadfastness in us. But the only way we can persevere is to pray. Pray to see our circumstances from God's perspective. Prayer is the only pathway to steadfastness where we won't wander from the truth. Prayer is also the evidence of our life of perseverance. So I want to ask, is prayer your first response? You can see this. I bought this at the craft boutique this weekend. You see it? But first, pray. That's going to be my reminder. But first, pray. Sometimes I think we tend to turn to friends first, or if we're in a confusing situation, we might even Google a solution to the problem. But I want to encourage you to intentionally saturate your life with prayer. Or maybe you are a prayer warrior. Let this message be an encouragement to you to keep praying. Let's not be women who say, the only thing left to do now is to pray. Okay, have you heard that? Have you said that? Don't let prayer be a last resort. 
Now, this kind of suffering, it might mean persecution, or it can refer to more general afflictions that we all experience, trials of various kinds. It could be illness, financial loss, betrayal, infertility, or death of a dear one. When we are in the trenches of suffering, it often doesn't make sense. We've already learned that our response should not be grumbling or retaliation or even a let's just grin and bear it kind of an attitude, but we need to turn to God in prayer for relief, for deliverance, for wisdom. Who else can we cry out to in times like these? Our Father, we can run to him for refuge. Job was an example that James used a few verses back in Job 5.11. Job remained steadfast in suffering. And I hope that you all plan to join us in our study coming up starting in January. Now Jesus endured ultimate suffering and he made a way for us to join him where there will be no more tears. He is making all things new. So we set our hope on things to come because of what Jesus has done for us. Now the second situation here that James brings up is when you are cheerful, sing praises. Now this is not just when everything is hunky-dory happy in your life, but when in the midst of sorrow or suffering, all is well with your soul and you are content in Jesus. When that's your situation, let your praise soar heavenward in praise. Tune my heart to sing your praise. So don't forget to express your gratitude to God when life is going well. The third situation is one of illness. When you are sick, pray. James says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So this command, call for the elders. Now this word is the same word, this word call, to describe the Holy Spirit and how he comes alongside of us to help us. Calling for the elders is an act of faith and obedience. It's asking them to come alongside of us. Our elders are spiritual leaders with what is kind of like a priestly role. Not the office of a priest, but they're ordained under Jesus as the head of the church. And by the way, each elder here at the North Church is responsible for a flock of members, and they want to pray for you. They want to know what's going on in your lives. And last night they met as a group down in the room down here, and I know that that's one of the things they were doing, was they were lifting up prayers for you as a congregation. So they want to know how to pray. These are godly, mature, strong, wise men in leadership who have this special shepherding responsibility. They take 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3 very seriously. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So they will anoint with oil in obedience to this text. So call them. I know that's something they're doing this Sunday for someone who did call them. All right, now this idea of anointing with oil, this might have sounded weird. Um, this could refer to using oil in a medicinal way, like the Good Samaritan did, but it's not what the Catholic Church calls extreme unction or last rites. That doesn't fit with the context here. We're calling the elders to pray for healing, not for death, okay? 
Now, James is not, or not recommending that you go out and you invest in essential oils either. That's not the point, okay? But Mark 16, I think you read this in your lesson, it's associated with, with healing under the authority of Jesus as an extension of Jesus' ministry. Now, Jesus did not need to anoint with oil, did he? He could heal with just a word or a touch. He even used mud and his spit to heal, right? So there's no magic in the oil. It's not the oil that heals. And this section is also not a prohibition uh, you know, against seeking medical treatment. Now the elders pray, you notice, in the name of the Lord and according to the will of God. So sometimes we know God's will, but many times we do not. And yet we trust God who knows better than we do. And we trust in his best plan for us. We know that he will always do good. Now Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So in prayer, what God does is he aligns our heart with his will. And here's an old illustration related to this that I read last week in an article by Tim Challies, and I wanted to, this made sense to me, I hope it does to you. He said, a theologian pondered how we can draw near to the throne of grace and what role prayer plays in this. He thought about a boat that was attached to the shore with a long rope. Once that boat was far up into the sea, the crew began to pull on that line. As the distance closed between the land and the boat, the sailors might have been tempted to think that they were drawing the land toward themselves. But of course, the land did not move one inch. Rather, it was the boat that moved as it was steadily pulled toward the land. And just like that, we are to attach our desires to God's throne with prayer. So we and our desires are the boat. Prayer is the rope. And as we pull on the rope, that is to say, when we pray, we don't expect God's throne to move toward ourselves. Rather, we expect that we will be drawn closer to the throne. We will not compel God to become more like us. Our desires will not overwhelm God, and our will will not, will not supersede his. Rather, as we draw near, we will become more like him. Our desires will become submitted to his, and our will will yield to his. We find ourselves at harmony with God and delight ourselves in his answer to our prayer, no matter what it is. As we draw closer to God through prayer, as we come into closer conformity to God through earnest prayer, we will find ourselves satisfied with plenty or want, joy or sorrow, peace or turmoil. We will desire for ourselves what God desires for us. We will be at harmony with his will, at harmony with his purposes, and at harmony with his providence. We will have drawn near to his throne. We, we will have drawn near to him, and we will be content. And then James continues, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. The root words here for sick and raise up can refer to both physical and spiritual illnesses and their cures, but in this context of anointing, scholars say they most likely refer to, at least primarily, to physical illnesses. Raising up, therefore, refers to them getting out of their bed after they're well again. But it also does point to our hope in the resurrection. So there's lots of confusion and misunderstanding about this verse, so it's very important that we know 
what James is saying and what he is not saying. So James lists the results of this prayer of faith. It will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Sadly, this text has been used to shame sick believers into thinking that if they could only muster up more faith, they would be healed. They say things like, I followed the instructions and I wasn't healed. Was there a problem with my praying? Is there a problem with my elders? Did we anoint in the wrong way? So you can see how this can lead to an unhealthy kind of introspection as to whether our prayers went unanswered because we were not righteous enough, we didn't do it in the right way. Now it may be that the Lord will heal miraculously and we rejoice when God does work in this way, but we trust in his sovereign plan. We are waiting, each one of us, for the ultimate and abiding healing of our physical bodies when all sickness and all death will be gone, gone forever. You might remember in the very first week of our study, I asked four of our women here at the North Church who had been struggling with cancer what it meant, what it meant to count it all joy. One of those friends was, my, was Gail. And I'm happy to report to you that Gail is now free from her suffering pain. She is experiencing nothing but the presence of joy at the feet of Jesus right now. So um, God doesn't always heal physically here and now. James is not giving us a blanket guarantee that all physical sickness will be healed in this life. Not every believer who heeds James' command to pray will receive that instant kind of healing. Nor does the absence of immediate recovery indicate a lack of faith. Did you hear that? The absence of immediate recovery or healing does not indicate a lack of faith. Faith itself is not magic. This is not name it, claim it theology here, or what you believe you can achieve. The power is not in our faith or in our elders' faith. The power is in God, in God alone. God chooses how and when he heals. The prayer of faith is not dependent on the amount of faith, but on the object of our faith. Faith in God and in his perfect will to be done. We can take Paul as an example. He pleaded with God to take away his thorn in the flesh three times. But instead of removing it, God said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I keep that verse up in my bathroom so I can see it when I brush my teeth morning and night. Paul said it was to keep him from becoming conceited. So ultimately, God is more interested in eternal spiritual health than temporary physical health. Even death for the believer is healing when we're raised up to life, just as Jesus was raised from the dead. So what is the prayer of faith? Well, back in James 1, 5 through 8, we saw that we are to ask in faith with no doubting. We pray with a confident expectation that God hears, God knows, God is wise and he is good. And he will answer our prayers in his way and his timing. James also describes this kind of prayer as having great power as it is working. And he gives the example of Elijah we're going to talk about in a minute. But I wanted to read you a quote from one commentator about this section. He said, somewhere in our prayers, we must find a balance between never expecting God to heal and requiring to him, him to heal on demand. I'll say that again. Somewhere in our prayers, we must find a balance 
between never expecting God to heal and then requiring him to heal on demand. It's interesting that the command to pray comes right after this section on patience because prayer takes some patient waiting, doesn't it? When we don't have the strength to wait patiently, God will sustain us. And when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit will transform our hearts and our wills so that our prayers begin to align with His will. We can cast all of our cares on Him because He cares for us. So be steadfast in prayer in all circumstances and then through all things to be steadfast. This is a community endeavor. So we are to care for one another, James says. Notice that repeated phrase, anyone among you, he repeats three times. And then the one another's he uses twice. So sisters, we need one another. We are to confess our sins to one another. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Notice James says, if. So he's not saying that all sickness is the result of sin, but some is. So therefore, confess to one another. So I want to look at these words that James uses here and the way he mixes them up. So I want you to look at verse 15. Actually, look at it, okay? Get your Bibles out or your scripture journals. I want you to look at verse 15. We might expect that James would say, the prayer of faith will heal the one who is sick. Because we're talking about healing and sickness, right? But he doesn't. He says, he uses the word save that's associated with saving from sin. And then the verse ends with, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then he mixes it up in verse 16 too. Do you see that? What would you expect him to say at the end of this sentence? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be forgiven, right? But he doesn't say that. He says, healed, right? So why does he do this? I want you to turn back now a few pages to James 4, verse 1. Remember the context. Remember our audience. Remember what's going on with our original audience? There were quarrels. Divisions, fighting, destruction, church-destroying pride and self-centeredness. It could be here that restoration to physical health would involve confession of sins, repentance of their pride, their worldliness, their double-minded hearts. Sin can have consequences. Like when the Corinthian church was abusing the Lord's Supper and their selfishness was so ugly. God took their sin seriously and he brought judgment. And Paul wrote, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Sometimes God uses sickness to get our attention, like the check engine light or the low tire pressure light that goes on in your car. And when that happens, you heed the warning or you know you risk further damage to the car. Sometimes, sometimes it's an easy fix, like getting a nail out and patching it. But sisters, we want to have hearts that heed those warnings in our life. We want to seek to purge personal sins and not have them grow into more serious patterns of sin that might damage the church. However, as we will learn as we study Job next semester, we cannot assume that someone else's suffering or illness is a direct result of their sin. This is why Job's so-called friends you know, they tried to accuse him of this. And this is what the Lord said about Job's friends. He said, my anger 
burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. And then do you remember in John 9, Jesus was asked about the man born blind because they assumed it was due to his sin. Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So suffering does not equal sin. Sin and death are a result of the great catastrophe that we've been learning about in Genesis. God knows your heart, and we stand before him alone. So if your thought is, when you are sick, your first thought is, oh, I must have sinned, you're probably not the one that James is addressing in this section. And remember here that it is not the elders that call the sick person. James did not write, is anyone among you sick? Let him expect a visit from the elders. No, you know your heart and can examine it for any ways that you might have been damaging the church through your prideful actions or attitudes. Remember, Jesus took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's Matthew 8. And through his death on the cross, he gives us forgiveness and healing. By his wounds, you are healed. If our sins are forgiven, we have eternal life and we have freedom from sin and freedom from death. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Pray for one another. This is a crucial responsibility to pray for our brothers and sisters to persevere, to hold each other to the truth. We are to be like Jesus to one another, praying for each other when in the throes of sickness and misery, encouraging one another with the promise of the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ alone. Now James goes on in verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The main idea here is that God answers the prayers of his people when they're offered in faith and in accordance with his will. James uses Elijah as an example, and you read 1 Kings 17 and 18 in your lesson this week. So we're here at number two on our outline. Steadfast example of prayer. This person that James uses as the example is Elijah. Elijah was a very popular prophet among the Jewish background believers. His name means, my God is Yahweh. And he did spectacular miracles. He could appear and disappear. He boldly confronted wicked kings. And he didn't die, but he was taken to heaven in a whirlwind. So how in the world was Elijah like us? <laughs> well, according to James, he had a nature like us. He was a normal fallen, stubborn human being. He was not a superhero. He prayed fervently, and that means he prayed with prayer. That's an interesting way that James wrote that. This is with a heart of faith and intense trust in the Lord. We should also pray frequently and faithfully. Jesus told a parable about a persistent widow, and the reason he told that was so that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. But of all the dramatic miracles done by Elijah, why does James use the prayer for drought and rain? James does not say Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that God might heal a widow's son. That was in that, you know, 1 Kings 17 and 18. 
But here in the context of prayer for physical healing, why would James not cite that healing of the widow's son? Here's what, here's what Elijah prayed at that point. He said, he stretched himself out upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, Oh Lord, oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. I want you to think about the context of Elijah's circumstances. Remember, Israel had a series of very bad kings, and they kept getting more and more wicked. King Ahab said, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Sin was rampant, and they were even worshiping at an altar that Ahab built for the false god Baal. Drought was a sign of God's judgment, and the people were now suffering because of their sin. Who's the audience for this letter that James wrote? To the church? And hasn't he addressed them in all kinds of suffering? and sin and problems that they were having. So what is the connection between this church that James was writing to and the people of Israel in Elijah's time? In 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah came near to all the people. This is the, where there's this contest, remember, between the, the, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Yahweh. And he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Is that kind of a theme that we've heard in James about being double-minded? So both here are God's people who were trying to keep a limping foot in both worlds. To use James' word, they were double-minded. They were trying to split their loyalties between the Lord and the world. They were the opposite of being steadfast. So Elijah, he threw down the gauntlet in that famous contest, and he said, if, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people didn't answer him a word. So both Elijah and James are urging believers to turn back to God, to repent. And as Elijah prayed, God heard and he answered. And we, we don't hear the, the prayer exactly for the, the drought to end, but here's what he prayed right before that, at the end of 1 Kings 18. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So like Elijah, the elders at the church are shepherds watching out for the flock guarding, calling for repentance, and for God's people to turn their hearts back to him. And so James ends this letter without the usual greetings, personal remarks, and benedictions. One commentator wrote this, James chooses to touch on one last awkward subject as he closes his letter. Here he deals with the problem of someone on the inside of the congregation wandering away from the faith. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, but know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So number three, be steadfast in pursuit of prodigals. James has been exhorting us to be steadfast in our praying and our faith. In the last two verses, we see the opposite. Those who are in the church professed faith in Jesus, maybe showing up on Sunday mornings and claiming that label of Christian, 
but they've now wandered from the narrow path. They've stopped walking faithfully with the Lord and they're enticed by the world. They may be on the edge of apostasy. Now, a couple things to remember here. James is not teaching that you can lose your salvation. If you walk away and do not ever turn back, it proves that you were never saved in the first place. And we can't save anyone, but we can seek to turn them back to God who saved them in the first place. So we are to embark on these search and rescue missions. So what causes this wandering? Well, ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, mankind has been wandering. It starts with sin in our own hearts. It moves in and it takes over. We are lured and enticed by our own desires, which bring forth death. And because of sin, we are like the people of Israel, wandering in the wilderness, directionless. But Jesus came to rescue us, made us, he, he was made like us in every respect except sin. And he humbled himself. He gave up everything to save us. So James, James has told us not to be double-minded, thinking we can love the world and love Jesus. Hebrews 3 says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And Galatians 6.1 says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. True love will tell the truth in love. Although in our culture, the most offensive thing you can do is to tell someone that they are wrong. We are called to live out our faith, a faith that works. And this is one of the hard works. Having hard conversations because we love our brothers and sisters so much. Being concerned with sin in others' lives and the love for the world. God uses the church community to draw wandering sheep back to the fold. So who in your life are you pursuing on your knees, pleading with God to save? Who are the prodigals that you are praying for? Be like Jesus, our good shepherd, who pursues, searches, and rescues that one lost sheep. And then there's great rejoicing when that lost one is found. So prayer is the appropriate action of a humble believer who is seeking God with a steadfast, whole, and undivided heart. So as we close the study of James, again, he's challenged us with some pretty high standards in many areas of life our speech, our finances, our love for the poor and the marginalized, our relationship with the world. I think it's easy to feel overwhelmed with our shortcomings, our failures, but remember James doesn't leave us there. Do you remember James 4, 6 through 10? Here's part of what he said. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The gospel, according to James, is that our amazing God gives more grace. Grace to walk out our faith in our everyday lives. Grace to encourage, to exhort, to speak the hard truth to fellow believers. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Would you pray with me as we close? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, your goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. 
Seal it for thy courts above. Lord, would you show us the sin that sometimes captivates us and leads us from the truth? Would you help us to steadfastly trust in you to persevere? For blessed are we who remain steadfast under trial, for when we have stood the test, we will receive the crown of life, which you have promised to those who love you. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all than all we can ask or even imagine or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.